to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read the first 20 verses of Matthew 5. Which is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. We're doing that in light of what it is that we confess in Article 25 of the Belgic Confession, which deals with the fulfillment of the law. Keep in mind how we're working through the Belgic Confession. We're in that section of the Confession that deals with Christ and the things that He accomplished on our behalf, on salvation and how salvation is ours through faith in Christ, how we are justified, declared righteous, that is, When we believe, then God in heaven wraps his gavel and declares us to be not guilty, innocent in fact, clothed in the garments of righteousness. And then he gives to us his spirit, that's the last we studied in the sanctification of sinners, he gives us his spirit so that we might live in a new way, in a way that is consistent with his will and word. And we do good works, not basing our salvation on them, the Confession says, for we cannot do any work that is not defiled by our flesh and also worthy of punishment, but we do these things in gratitude to the Lord for the salvation that he has worked on our behalf. And now we're going to listen to how the Old Testament particularly the ceremonies and symbols of the law, have a place in that walk with the Lord. And we have something of that here in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's for the reading of God's holy words. There we have the Lord providing a new, a radical way of living, of being salt and light. 
And then he immediately follows that with a word about the law. Like confession does the same thing, follows that pattern. Speaks about our sanctification, about our walking in a new way of living. And now in Article 25 speaks about the law. And in Article 25, which is found on page 180 or page 864, 180 in your forms and prayers books, 864 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, there in Article 25 of the Belgic Confession, we confess this. We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ and that all foreshadowings have come to an end so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. This the church does believe. And brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to a matter of significance for the church of Jesus Christ, one that isn't always thought about or reflected on, but one that certainly has a profound impact on the study of God's Word, on the meaning of God's Word, on so much of God's Word. If you have had opportunity to worship in churches more broadly, if you have had opportunity to worship amongst various evangelical congregations in your experience, and if you've heard them preach sermons particularly out of the Old Testament, you're probably going to hear a sermon that is uh, on one of the stories of the Old Testament. You're probably going to hear something maybe out of Samuel or Kings, Genesis or, or, or Exodus. You're probably not going to hear from later in Exodus where you have all those rules and regulations about the tabernacle and about the various sacrifices that are to be offered. You're probably never going to hear a sermon on Leviticus with all of its priestly code and all the rest. Uh, but you will probably hear something on uh, those stories that we all hold dear in the Old Testament. Maybe you've not experienced that, but maybe you've been in a hotel and you've opened the drawer beside your bed and there you found a, a Bible placed by the Gideons, uh, a, a wonderful ministry and a way for the gospel to go forth. And you notice that those Bibles contain um, uh, the, the New Testament and only small portions of the Old Testament, usually Psalms and maybe Proverbs, as well as the New Testament. And, and the reason for that, the reason why so many parts of the Old Testament are overlooked, so many parts uh, of the Bible never make the light of, of a worship service within the church, is not just because they're challenging, though that can be true, uh, but because we're not entirely sure what to do with them. There are these historical passages, there are these passages that say stuff about what's happened, what Israel was supposed to do, what the temple would look like, what the, uh, the tabernacle's sacrifices and offerings were to all be about. If you commit this sin, you bring that kind of offering. If you do this, you bring that. There's all sorts of interesting and fascinating elements and aspects to the scriptures that we find in the Old Testament. But what to do with them, we don't know. How they impact our lives we don't know. We, we don't really have a way to appropriate, to apply those things into our 
normal day at home as we're dealing with kids or at school, dealing with teachers or students and classmates, or as we're at work in the office or in the field. What do we do with all of these Old Testament passages? In fact, some of them don't seem to do us any good at all. Where you come, for example, to that passage which says you can't sow two seeds in one field. Now, what are you going to do with that in the New Testament era? Or you can't have two kinds of cloth or fabric in one garment. What are you going to do with that in our modern day? And so we have these weird rules or these weird passages that we don't know really what to do with. We read them because we should, but we pass over them rather quickly and pay them very little mind. Well, the Belgic Confession not only helps us to unlock the significance of these uh, passages for us, they give us a reason to go back into our Bibles and to read those stories or read those passages, read those laws, read those ceremonies and symbols, and to read them for our current circumstance. They give us a way to go back into the Old Testament and to find valuable treasures in the Word that can help affect and regulate our lives even today. How it does that is by, first of all, placing the Old Testament ceremonies and symbols in their appropriate context. That's the first thing the the Belgic Confession does. It says, We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ and that all foreshadowings have come to an end so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians, Yet the truth and substance of these remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they have been fulfilled. Now, it should be worth noting that it first mentions the ceremonies and symbols of the law, including then a reference to foreshadowings, which is significant because it does focus our attention on what we're talking about here. The Old Testament law is often divided into three parts. There is the moral law. Those are the Ten Commandments, for for lack of a better term. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those moral things that are always relevant and have always been relevant in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the days of, of, of the ancients and in the current circumstance. We all agree the moral commands of God still have an abiding significance for all men. Then there are the civil laws of the Old Testament. Those are the ones that were related especially to the kingdom of of Israel under the the Lord's ministry in the promised land. Uh, You can think about what a king was supposed to do or not to do. You can think about all of the regulations respecting murder and crimes and and, and theft and those sorts of things, what what you had to pay back and what you had to, to do if you committed this or that different crime. And then you had the ceremonial laws. That's the third category. And those were the ones related to the temple and to the worship of God's people. We're not here talking about the moral or the civil laws as much as we're talking now about the ceremonial laws, those laws that that pictured for us the goodness and grace of God as it would come to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And all of those pictures, says the Belgic Confession, have come to an end. Now, that means that there's more than just the end of rules and regulations. It means that all of the pictures of the Old Testament have come to an end. And there are a lot of pictures in the Old Testament 
The death of the firstborn, for example, if we just look at the book of Exodus, the exodus from Egypt itself, the passing through the Red Sea, those are all symbols, those are all foreshadowings of Jesus' coming. And the Belgic Confession rightly reminds us that all of those things, all of those pictures of the coming of Jesus have come to an end And where there are rules and regulations, like you have to bring a lamb for this sin, you have to bring an offering for that sin, they're all abolished. They're not just recalibrated, they're all ended. Even though what lies at the heart of them is to be retained. Now, we do wrestle with this at times, with those Old Testament ceremonies and symbols, precisely because we don't follow them, do we? We don't walk in that way. That's not the form of worship we offer the Lord today. And we're not always sure why. Indeed, sometimes it feels to us like we're picking and choosing which laws of the Old Testament we like and don't like. So for example, sometimes somebody will say, well, you know, God condemns homosexuality. And they will point to some passage in Leviticus, Leviticus 18, for example, And then somebody else will reply, as is so often the case, well, if you don't like Leviticus 18, if you don't have to follow Leviticus 18, or rather, if you do, if if you're saying Leviticus 18 has abiding significance, then do you refuse to eat pork? Do you uh, bring a lamb to the temple for your sacrifice of sin? And now we have a bit of a problem, don't we? We want to say, well, this law, Leviticus 18, 22 has an abiding significance, but that law doesn't. And we're not sure why we can do that or how we can do that, so we get confused. Just think, for example, for to that end, even just about the fourth commandment, a, a commandment we kind of obey, don't we? We're here today at church. We're worshiping together. But the commandment says we're supposed to worship on the seventh day, which is yesterday, not today. Today's the first day. And so we go, wait a minute, how does that work How do we deal with the fact that we don't worship on Saturdays, but we worship on Sundays? How can we make sense of these different rules and regulations? It sounds sometimes, it feels sometimes like we're just picking and choosing what we like. How do we make sense of all of these Old Testament rites and rituals? Are they just a relic of the past? Do they have abiding significance? Do we really need to read the book of Leviticus? Or is it just visiting a museum that is interesting but not very necessary? Now, obviously, we don't follow these rules. Obviously, we don't. That's not the point. We're not going to try and argue that we should. What we're going to try to understand is why we don't. We do eat pork, or we at least may. And we certainly worship on Sunday, but we don't bring a bull or a goat to be sacrificed on the altar. We know that we don't follow these rules, but we want to understand today why not. That's the profound question, isn't it? It is a redemptive and glorious question. Why don't we follow those examples? Well, in the history of the church, there have been and remain those who, who explain this difference in this way. They said that the Old Testament ceremonies and rites and symbols were one way of God's people to be saved, kind of like a first draft of salvation, kind of like a beta version of God's plan for his people. That is, 
God gave his people this very intricate, very detailed manual for living, this playbook that they were to follow. And if they followed it perfectly, if they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, they would achieve some measure of salvation. It was a way for them to earn their place before his throne of grace. And when that didn't work out, plan B was initiated And plan B is Jesus. That's why the Old Testament, especially all those strange rules and regulations, really don't have anything to say to the New Testament Christian anymore. That's why many broad evangelical churches, broadly speaking now, evangelical churches who hold to this position on the Old Testament and on the dispensation of God, the way that God went about saving his church, that's why so many of them have no use for the book of Leviticus, etc., Because that was God's first attempt at saving God's people, which didn't work. And now we have Jesus, which is God's second way of saving God's people. And we don't have to have anything with that Old Testament anymore. We don't need to live under law. We're under grace. Oh, and by the way, that's why Sundays don't need to be filled with rules and regulations. Sundays are just another day that you take some time to worship in but for the rest, do what you want. That's why, again, broadly speaking, evangelical churches deal with the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the way that they do. We don't follow Old Testament rules anymore. The problem with that whole idea is that it's built on a false premise and is entirely inconsistent with what the Old Testament itself says about all those rules and regulations. The purpose of the ceremonies and the symbols of the Old Testament was never to be plan A, a first draft of salvation. From the very first, they were pictures pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ by whom salvation would always come. They were childlike, simple images for immature members of the church. Indeed, we can speak, the Bible does speak of Old Testament Christians as immature, as children. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 3. He said, the law was our guardian, who was, you'll remember, a slave appointed by the master of the house to take care of his children until they reached the age of maturity. Paul's saying the law was given, all those ceremonies and symbols were given when the church was in its infancy, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In fact, Paul elsewhere points to the Old Testament to demonstrate that, in fact, it itself demanded faith in Jesus Christ. Think of Romans 4, verse 17 and following, for example. That Paul there says, listen, Abram is given to us as an example of what it means to live in fellowship with God. He goes all the way to the Old Testament and says you have to follow that pattern. Indeed, this is already revealed in the Old Testament itself. Consider that rite of circumcision about which we heard a bit this morning. But how God then commanded that foreskin to be removed of all eight-day-old baby boys in Israel. What was that about? Well, God told us what that was about 
In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Moses says to God's people, that picture, that image, that, that sacramental uh, uh, removal of the foreskin is a reminder, a teaching, a demanding that your heart be circumcised. You must have the foreskin of your heart removed. Moses thereby saying, this outer symbol has a deeper spiritual significance, one which calls for you not to just obey it outwardly, but to be transformed inwardly. Indeed, we can do this with so many of the ceremonies and symbols of the Old Testament. The writer to the Hebrews does just that in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. He goes back to all of those Old Testament symbols and ceremonies, a lot of those sacrifices, the bringing of a bull or a goat or a lamb for sacrifice, and he says, let's go back and let's ask ourselves, what was God teaching you there? He was not teaching you that you could be saved by the blood of bulls and goats. Oh no, says the writer of the Hebrews. That makes no sense. Because why would God demand that you do it every year? If a, go boat, a, a bull rather, could remove your sin from you, why would you have to offer it next year again? The only explanation, he says, that can be provided for this is that it didn't work, not in that way. That is, that the offerings of blood, the blood of bulls and goats was never intended to cleanse the worshiper of their sins. It was instead to be a picture, a pointing forward, a finger, you might say, a, a sign on the side of the highway that says, Jesus is this way. And if you now approach the Old Testament that way, if you now open up the book of Leviticus and say, I want to see things about Jesus and about what He's done for me and how I'm saved by His grace and goodness, all of a sudden that book becomes this glorious display of the gospel message. If you read it, as the way that Old Testament Israel was supposed to get saved, you'll find it very confusing. But if you approach those passages, those ceremonies and symbols, as signposts on the highway, ever pointing you forward, as picturing God's righteousness and grace and His love for you, if you look close enough, you will see silhouetted in all of those strange commands the image of Jesus expressed now in visual and tangible form. Indeed, if we ask ourselves, as we read those passages, all those crazy laws and strange rules and regulations, how does this show me my need of Jesus? Or how did Jesus accomplish this? Or why does God require this? If we ring each of these Old Testament ceremonies and symbols, we will discover that what drips out of them is the gospel itself. From the food Israel ate, to the seeds they planted, to the clothes they wore, to the offerings they had to provide and the work of the priests that were required of them, it all speaks of God's grace and goodness, of His righteousness and provision of a Messiah, and of what it means to live in fellowship with the King. That being the case, 
Since these little laws, or these laws rather, are little pictures of Jesus meant to prepare God's people for his incarnation, death, and resurrection. Since that's how we should approach the Old Testament, two things are important and true. One, we don't need them anymore. Because we don't need to obey the form the regulations of these ceremonies and symbols. Why would we? You don't need the pictures when you have the Word made flesh. Once you've arrived at your destination, you can hit end route on your GPS. You don't need it anymore. Where we're going is where we've arrived at in Jesus Christ. This is how in Christ we can say, and the Belgic Confession can teach us, that the ceremonies and symbols of the law are fulfilled in Him. Which brings us to number two. We still benefit. We still find great blessing from these ceremonies and symbols, from studying them and learning about them. Even the really weird ones. Think about the one that says, don't boil a, baby's goat, a baby goat rather, in its mother's milk. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything? A, who's doing that? And B, why are they doing that? And why would anyone want to do that? But in that, you begin to study. When you open a commentary, when you begin to learn about what that culture and that moment was about, you begin to learn wonderful things about who God is and who we are and what it means to be alive in Jesus Christ. In fact, shouldn't we demand that as His people, we regulate our lives and live in the light of even those Old Testament ceremonies and symbols? We don't have to obey their form, but their content is very relevant. Indeed, that's what the Belgic Confession goes on to teach us. It says, listen, those ceremonies and symbols, when Jesus has come, you don't need the ceremonies and symbols anymore. But, nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and the gospel, or the law and the prophets, rather, to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God and according to His will. So the Belgic Confession says, The Old Testament's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. We don't need to live that way anymore. But we need to still live that way. You say, wait a second, wait a minute. Which one is it? It's one or the other. Either these things are fulfilled and so we don't need them anymore, or we must follow them and still need them. That's what we wrestle with, or that's why we wrestle with the passage that we read from in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus seems to be saying something very similar. Uh, Jesus speaks about how salvation ultimately is of His grace, and yet, and yet, He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, come to, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You say, wonderful, Jesus, you have fulfilled the law. We don't need to uh, walk in it anymore. This, despite the fact that he's just given us those Beatitudes, which are a law unto themselves, a command to us to live in a particular way. But we think, okay, the Old Testament law fulfilled. We don't need them anymore. Except Jesus then goes on to say, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That iota 
uh, and that dot are the smallest marks in Greek writing. In Greek writing, the smallest letter is the letter I. It's iota, almost like a comma, and then a dot is obviously a, just a, a dot. The smallest letter in the entire law will not be will not be will not pass away rather until all is accomplished and therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven and whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the pharisees uh, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, now that seems a bit confusing, doesn't it? Jesus says, I've come to fulfill them, but don't you imagine for a moment that you can live without them. You must live in light of them. Why is that? What is Jesus trying to say? What is the Belgic Confession in echoing this teaching of Jesus trying to say? Well, we need to remember again that when we approach the law of God, we must not approach it as a way for us to earn any standing before God. That's never been true, was not true in the Old Testament, and certainly not true in the New Testament, where we live in the grace and in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The law has always been a way for God's people uh, principally to praise God, to regulate their lives, to order their world in a way that brings Him glory. Uh, the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, the, 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 the ways in which Israel was to be organized, it meant that Israel was to be this light to the nations, this city on a hill, that as the nations came through Canaan, and it was planted on a crossroad so that so many of the nations passed through Israel in their journeys on trade and on the rest, as these nations came through Israel, they would see a radically distinct, a very different society organized in a very different way, doing very different things, all of which were to bring glory to the God who had redeemed them. That's what the law was all about. It was about teaching God's people how to live in fellowship with God and with each other. And that's still the case when we come to the Old Testament as fulfilled in Jesus Christ, when we wring out every one of those commands and see what drips from them, what we discover is that we're learning how God wants us to live with Him and with, him, with each other. Distilling the heartbeat of every one of those symbols and ceremonies is for God's people a very valuable way for us to learn what God wants us to do in today's day and age, in today's culture, and in the midst of a very depraved and anti-Christian world. God wants us to be set apart. God wants us to be distinct. He still wants us to be, as Jesus said, salt and light, a city upon a hill, a lamp upon a stand. Well, how can we do that? How can we be set apart from the anti-Christian spirit of our culture? How can we be distinct from the world around us and yet remain within it as a light and a witness for it? Well, there's many teachings of the New Testament, many teachings of the Apostle Paul and Peter and all the rest. But the Old Testament was for those teachers, for the apostles, the foundation upon which they built their description and their demand. They, like we, went, or as we should, went back to the Old Testament and discerned the heartbeat of what God was teaching. Yes, even in those laws, 
that we may find today very strange. And they remind us, therefore, that as Christians, first of all, we are never to live our lives free from the teaching and instruction of our sovereign, gracious God. That's the challenge we face in today's culture, not only in today's worldly culture, but even within the church culture, broadly understood now, North American church culture. If we sort of look at the North American church as a whole, what we discover is that spirituality, Christian living, is a bit of a free-for-all, isn't it? Some think that God is to be glorified in the inclusiveness of everything. Others seem to think that it's a very narrow, very specific way of living, a very limited way of joyless service before God. How do we, how do we make sense as a church of the Christian call and how do we live in this life? Well, the Old Testament ceremonies and symbols are a valuable resource for us to study. We don't decide what God should receive as our worship. God does. That's one of the things the ceremonies and symbols teach us. God has made us Himself known and His wisdom is inscrutable and good. And when we take up His Word and like Samuel of old say, Speak, Lord, for Your servant is listening, then we will never stumble, never fall into a trap, never get lost when we follow the teaching of God's Word. Maybe not its form, maybe not its expression in the Old Testament context, but when we follow its content, when we follow its substance. Living by the Word is the great wisdom for all of those who know its treasure. Read the Old Testament. Read some of those passages like the book of Proverbs and discover how very relevant they are for today, for right now. Listen, for that matter, to the, Old, to the New Testament commands which call us to sacrificial service and loving devotion and you will discover a message that is found on every page of the Old Testament in the demands of God for His people. Now the reason we note that is precisely because I think that's where we struggle. Not in interpreting the Old Testament. We have a grid, we have a way for being able to read the Old Testament. For being able to go through all of those laws and all of those various ceremonies and symbols of the Old Testament and discern what God is teaching us in those things. We already know what it is. We're going to listen for the gospel. We're going to listen for what God is teaching us about Himself, about His Son, about who we are and how we ought to live. I think the reason we struggle with reading the Old Testament is more because we don't like that kind of rigorous and strict living. We think it's works righteousness when someone says, for example, I don't do that on Sundays. Of course, we really like it when people don't murder, steal, or commit adultery, lie, or plot our ruin. We're good with everyone keeping all the other commandments, but when it comes to the fourth, we get a little sideways Not because we have such a hard time with the commandment, but because we don't want to be told what to do and what not to do. Sundays really become for us this day of regulations and rules when it ought to be a day of celebrating God's grace and goodness, which is precisely what the Old Testament would teach us it's all about. 
that when you read those many laws and regulations related to the, Old Te- to the Sabbath, what you discover is that God is not meticulously ordering every footfall and hand movement and activity of the church, but that he's teaching them of their great privilege and blessing. And that the Sabbath, the Lord's Day now, is a day of grateful worship and praise. It's not a chore, a job, or a task. It is a privilege and a blessing and a wonder. Indeed, ironically, those who claim that living in the light of God's law is works righteous, is works righteousness, are in fact most often the most works righteous people you'll ever face because they'll tell you they're saved because of what they've done. But we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus has done. What we want to know is how can we say, thank you, Jesus. How can we use this day that God has set apart for praising Him? Well, the Old Testament is going to teach us in wonderful ways exactly how to do that. Now, it can happen that we do get the wrong idea and think that by keeping the rules, we're better people and that we're staying in God's grace keeping ourselves saved, unlike those people who don't live the way we do, who are such terrible, wicked people because they desecrate the Lord's Day. It is true that when we enjoy and celebrate God's teachings towards us about the wonder of His will, that we can get a bit self-righteous. And that's especially true in a multi-generational, covenantally richly blessed community such as ours. Because we begin to believe as children or grandchildren or even great-great-grandchildren of, of believers, our whole entire family tree being filled with them, we can begin to believe that the routine and the rhythm of our lives, which has been shaped and saturated by the Word of God, we can believe that it's really our choice, our wisdom, our activity, that we do things right and our businesses are successful and our families are blessed and our relationships are good because of who we are. We can get self-righteous when we strive to live holy lives, looking at others who don't enjoy the blessedness we do and saying to them, you don't try hard enough and if you just made better choices and the rest. Which is why, again, a study of the Old Testament ceremonies and symbols remains vital for all of God's people. Precisely because when you do, you will meet face to face the glory of your crucified Messiah. When you read in the Old Testament all of these laws and symbols and ceremonies, the cross is the thing that comes so clearly before your eyes. Oh, There are those passages that remind you of your sin that are hard to read about and difficult to have to deal with. But there are all those passages that remind us also of our salvation. Reminding us that we fail more than we succeed, but that He has succeeded more than we can begin to imagine. In many respects, we're all like toddlers learning to walk as Christians in fits and spurts. We get up and take a few tentative steps and then fall again, but get back up and again take a few more steps. None of us is Andre de Grasse running the 100 meter faster than it takes some of us to get out of a chair. All of us are like children learning how to live. And that's okay. Nobody gets to be 
be, uh, count themselves as higher than anyone else. We're all trying to figure the Christian life out. But the law of God, the ceremonies and symbols of the law, will show us the better way. And ever inching forward in progress, as we listen and learn from these things, we gain new steps, we gain new strengths, we gain new ways of praising God and for rejoicing in His grace. That's the wonder, isn't it, of God's Word. It shows us we're miserable, but He's amazing. And it leaves us with the amazing and says, don't worry about the miserable. Just praise Him. Praise Him in all that you do and say. Give your life to praising. But I failed today. His grace is sufficient for that. Get up tomorrow and praise Him. But I'm going to fail Him tomorrow. His grace is sufficient for that. Praise Him as best you can. When our little ones learn to walk and as they come to us, we cheer them on with great joy and thanksgiving. Not because they've accomplished such great things, but because there's progress being made. In the Christian life, we want to see progress. Spiritual progress. The Spirit of Christ captivating more of our thoughts, more of our words, more of our actions. Not so that we can say, look at how good I am. Not at all but so that we can say, look at how great God is. And when somebody says to us, then why, why, do, you live, why do you order your life this way? Why do you think in these terms? Why is your perspective that way? We can point them to the law of God. We can point them to the God of the law. We can point them to the Savior who has redeemed us in, Jesus, or in His sacrifice on the cross. That's what the Old Testament ceremonies and symbols do for us, and that's why they remain for us valuable. Not one iota, not one dot will be ever forgotten or passed away until Jesus returns. Because every one of those little marks in the Greek teach us about our God and what it means to live with Him. And therefore, though we acknowledge that they're fulfilled, these ceremonies and symbols, and that we don't need to keep them in any way anymore. We also admit that they have a lot to teach us. And then there's much that can help us to walk in the way of Jesus Christ. Not in the form, only in the content, in the way that we wring out that, that tea towel, that, that, that uh, hand cloth that, that's gotten wet, and we wring it out. And what comes out? When you wring out the Old Testament, the Gospel comes out. And when we acknowledge that, That means that we have a reason and a way to relate to the Old Testament ceremonies and symbols. We have a reason in our devotions around the table to open up the book of Leviticus. And maybe we don't read a whole chapter. Maybe we just read about one of those little ceremonies and we say to ourselves, maybe around the table we even discuss it and say, now, how do you think this? What does this have to do with Jesus? And when you get to that law that says not not to... to, uh, um, you may not breed two different animals together, not two seeds in one, one field, not two cloths in one garment. They're all part of one set of commands. Ask yourself, what's the law teaching me about purity? Why is purity so important to God? Why is it that Jesus says, blessed are the, uh, those who are pure in heart? And why will they see God? All of a sudden, the passage opens up for us and we have a teaching that we don't take into our tractors when we're planting our fields. 
except that we take the heart of it into our lives and live it out in every way that the Lord calls us to. The Word of the Lord is our lamp and our light. It teaches us the way in which we should live. And we want to now sing about that in our singing of number 171. Number 171.